Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the bridge collapsing in Pittsburgh just before President Biden arrived there to address the dire state of infrastructure in the country with 43,000 bridges nationwide in poor and unsafe condition. Joining us is Nesta Gomez, professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Department of Mechanical Engineering, and we will discuss the extent to which the bipartisan infrastructure bill will address these long-neglected problems with money in the pipeline going to Pittsburgh. But there is some question as to whether the need for steel and cement can be met since so much outsourcing has led to a decline of manufacturing and supply chains are now stressed, creating shortages of vital components. Then we'll get some good news for a change in terms of efforts underway to cut off revenues going to the murderous kleptocratic military junta in Burma, Myanmar, with the French energy company Total, along with Chevron and Shell, pulling out of oil and gas deals that provide the junta with $1 billion a year. Joining us is Brad Adams, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Asia Division, where he oversees the organization's work on human rights issues in 20 countries from Afghanistan to the Pacific. He worked in Cambodia for five years as a senior lawyer for the Cambodian Field Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights and now teaches international human rights law and practice at the UC Berkeley Law School. And since Total have acknowledged they pulled out of Myanmar largely because of lobbying from Human Rights Watch, we will examine whether pressure on Thailand and Singapore to stop the financial flow to the junta will help free the oppressed Burmese people. Then finally we will speak with Jonathan Katz, who received the James Foley Medill Medal for Courage in Journalism for his reporting from Haiti. He was a New America National Fellow in the Future of War program, and his latest book just out is Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, the Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. We'll discuss the Wall Street coup plot against FDR that Smedley Butler exposed and the similarities between what happened in 1933 and the January 6th attempted coup. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Nesta Gomez, who's a professor professor at Carnegie Mellon University Department of Mechanical Engineering. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nesta Gomez. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Nesta. And President Biden was in uh, at your university, Carnegie Mellon, on Friday, where he made a speech about infrastructure shortly after a bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh. And even the president himself seemed to be surprised that there were so many bridges in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> I take it there's a lot of work to be done on bridges in this country. There are 43,000 bridges nationwide in poor condition. So what's your sense of how quickly this money in the pipeline from the bipartisan infrastructure bill will address that incredible problem? 
Well, money definitely helps. There is no, there's no solution that can be, there's no halfway solution. A lot of these bridges will have to be replaced. And to be fair, if we almost never build a bridge to last 100 years. If it does last 100 years, then we consider that a great success. But the, the lifespan of a bridge when it, at the time that it's designed is a good maybe 50 or 60 years. So when we see a bridge, this probably bridge probably had a few more years left in it, uh, and, but corrosion and other kinds of you know, damage wore it down. So it, well, it was, what is it, 52 years old. So it-, it 90, 1970 it was uh, built. Right, so, so it's probably short for this bridge, but this bridge is also built at a time when one of the, when one of the great driving forces of structural engineering was efficiency. Uh, so, but when you get, when you go into efficiency, it does cut into this extra reliability that's built into, into our structures. So in other words, we're better at predicting the behavior of structures so that it makes it more difficult to say, we should spend more money. Whereas before, when we weren't able, you know, before the 1970s, before the computer age, when we were not able to very exactly analyze or understand the behavior of structures, there was this tendency of, well, we're going to rely on, you know, just experience and rules of thumb and whatever it costs, whatever it costs, that's what it costs. But once we were able to say, well, now you we have to prove that you actually need this extra expense. So there was more efficiency in design. And there are a lot of things that are very difficult to quantify. The effects of time are very difficult to quantify. In the, in the northern climates where uh, it's not clear, there's almost no way to know now what desalination strategy is going to be used 40 years from now. So that's the big ask on the design of a bridge. Uh, and desalination technology has changed. You know, the chemicals that are used are based on availability of that year. Uh, there are environmental concerns, so we're trying to use less salt, we add more slag, and that creates different reactions. So it's very difficult to predict what the 50-year what the lifespan of a bridge is. So I think that's what, one of the things that, that needs to be, be accounted for when we create the priority list. Although I suspect that, the, that all the Department of Transportation of all 50 states have a very clear priority list for every single one of their bridges already. Well, the Department of Transportation in Pennsylvania rated this bridge as poor. So do you have to start looking at the rating system? No. It, it, it essentially is prioritized to be replaced. And, but if there's nothing to finance, say there are bridges that are probably in worse condition and have been shut down or have been, de or have been graded down to the point that, for example, no trucks, no buses. Whereas this bridge still it was still rated, I think it was rated for 26 tons if I saw the signs on it, which is about the weight of a, of a double length bus, which is what that route requires because of where it fits into the city. This link is actually, it connects. There's almost no other connection to that part of the city except this one bridge. Well, of course, it would have been a lot worse, by the way, had in terms of ca there were no casualties miraculously, but had it occurred a little later in the day, it would have been really much worse, right? Yeah. So on Friday, there was a two hour delay due to weather for the school district. So the school buses were not online at the time. They weren't running, but that route would very likely have, have school buses at that time. 
normally. So it, it was fortunate for that. Actually, afterwards, the school, um, except for the high schools, which were already on their way to, to the buildings, they actually closed all the school buildings and, they, and the children had to do remote learning on that on Friday. But we're already on a two-hour delay. So that, that was fortunate in a sense. And again, I'm speaking with Nesta Gomez, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University Department of Mechanical Engineering. And as I mentioned earlier, the president spoke on Friday at your university, Carnegie Mellon, Nesta, and he made a major speech on infrastructure, touting how the new bipartisan infrastructure law has come into play. And Quoting the present now, just 74 days after signing that law, we're ready, already making tangible differences for highways, ports, airports, rail, high-speed internet, clean air, and clean water. And apparently, the infrastructure bill will invest at least $1.6 billion in Pennsylvania bridges, including $327 million in fiscal year 2022. So that all sounds good. But there's still money unspent from the first uh, stimulus package that was passed early in the Biden administration. So I'm wondering about how this money is going to be spent and will it target? I mean, first of all, do we know which of the <laughs> worst off bridges? I mean, this one caught us by surprise, didn't it? You were saying earlier that it was rated poor, but there are worse ones. So how do you prioritize the money and prioritize where it's most needed? Um the, the the state the state transportation agencies the DOTs they they are constantly inspecting every single bridge actually there any bridge that's over a certain length must be inspected once a year or once every two years and and the inspection includes both visual inspection non destructive testing and and everything else this bridge for example it was it was clear in the pictures that it had already been retrofitted to to requalify it. Right. There was um, additional bracing added to the bridge. It's clear in the, in the photos. There was uh, extra cross cabling to add lateral stability. Um, so the, the bridge was clearly already not, it was not performing in the way that it was intended when it was designed in 1970. That was already clear of this bridge. Um, another problem that we have in engineering is that although we are, we're really good at communicating what we want to be constructed, we're not very good at communicating why we made the decisions that we made. So then when there is a second cycle of design or redesign or retrofit, the, the new engineers essentially have to start from scratch. They, they, they don't understand, okay, why did you put 10 bolts? And why is this, uh, you know, why do you use this specific angle for the cross bracing? And, and we have all these decisions that we make as we go through the design that gets carried out into the construction, but it doesn't carry it out. It doesn't get carried through to the next uh, group, the, team, the next team of engineers that's, that's responsible for the design or the retrofit. So there's always a miscommunication there that there's assumptions being made, but we don't know what those assumptions were. We, we have to assume on an assumption. And that's how we get into, we, we start pushing into the safety margins that are quite generous in structural analysis, right? In, in civil engineering, we we both overestimate the loading and we underestimate the strength so that we end up with something that we can, we have a certain level of guarantee that it is safe. 
But once we start digging into, oh, if we can only get five more years out of this bridge, or if I put this extra element on, it will make up for this other thing that's damaged. And we keep, once we start playing that game, that's when we get into, into a lot of unknowns that we cannot handle. But the idea of all of this money being spent through the Department of Transportation, through Pete Buttigieg's department, to go to these 43,000 bridges nationwide that are in poor condition, how quickly can this money be spent? And as I mentioned, you know, there's still money in the pipeline that hasn't been spent from the American Rescue Plan, which was passed early in the Biden administration. So are you satisfied that the money will get to where it's needed quickly? I, I think even if it is, that we are very behind in, for example, steel construction and concrete, uh, you know, manufacturing and all the other and all the other components that it requires to, to actually build up our infrastructure. Bridges are, are, are big material, right? It requires a lot of material, a lot of equipment, and the, the equipment is limited and it has to be moved from place to place and scheduled. And any project takes, right, any, you know, this bridge will probably take a good year to replace if at maximum, at warp speed, it would take a year to replace such a bridge. And this bridge doesn't really have many challenges because it doesn't go over a roadway. It doesn't go over a large river. So it's a very easy bridge to replace. And even then, it would still take a year. The Pittsburgh also had another bridge replaced recently. And, and I am convinced that it was prioritized because it became a national embarrassment. Um, Stephen Colbert did a whole, made fun of it because this, there was this bridge that had another bridge below it to catch the debris that falls from the real bridge. Um, this, is the, this is a bridge that's actually <laughs> half a mile from my house. And so clearly the priorities, there's a lot of juggling being done in the priorities. And what this money does, it says, okay, we, we, we can be a little bit more generous and we can make use of some opportunities. Oh, so we have these resources for these kinds of bridges that are these lengths and we use these kinds of materials. We can just prioritize them only because we can build them quickly. Whereas before we were like, well, we have to also we have to also prioritize the funds. So taking one thing out of the equation, the availability of funds, I think is going to help things a lot because it, now we're making decisions based on not just not just what we can spend on, but what is actually possible to build. What kind of resources? What kind of labor? What kind of machinery can we apply to these bridges? Right. Well, do we know, though, what percentage of the money is actually going to go to the components needed to build these new bridges and to build the infrastructure that needs to be replaced or refitted? You mentioned earlier that there's a shortage of cement and steel. So are those shortages being addressed as well by the bipartisan infrastructure package, the $1.6 trillion? There are uh, priorities being put not only from from the infrastructure bill, from the Build Back Better, that pushing a lot into manufacturing and to bring back more manufacturing into the United States. Right, but that bill stalled. That's not that's not going anywhere. Build Back Better. Right. So so that that's the danger that we we have to break things up to be able to pass it in a, you know from the political point of view, but then the separate parts do not work as well on their own as one with things. Uh, there are other issues also, right? The United States is not the only, you know, player trying to build this infrastructure. So 
you know, the developing world wants to build more infrastructure, you know, China and India are trying to build as, build, build as much as they can. And that's one of the things that has driven up the price of materials, especially steel. Uh, but so the United States has to somehow push for you know, the, the industry that has already, that, the infrastructure that has already existed in the United States, right? Pittsburgh area is known for steel, but that, that company, US Steel, which is you know, headquartered in Pittsburgh, was almost broke for a good 15, 20 years. And one of the things that brought it back was the high demand of steel in China. So now can we somehow resist the urge to you know, sell abroad where we can work to an entity that can pay almost anything? Well, that's, isn't that happening there, Nesta, because of the supply chain problems as a result of the pandemic, that there's a kind of wake-up call going across the board with American industry. Uh, Intel are now investing $20 billion in a They offshored everything just about to China and South Korea and Taiwan, and now they're wanting to invest at home. So is that happening across the board, a re- recognition that U.S. industry has to be revived? Yes. I mean, there are challenges even in the revival of the industry, right? We do not want to revive it the way it was in the 40s and 50s, where, you know, we essentially pumped, you know, trillions of gigatons into the, into the atmosphere, of carbon into the atmosphere. So there is a challenge there. And that's one of the things that the United States actually, if, if there's even political capital to be invested in that. Whereas a lot of the other infrastructure developments all over the world, they do not have necessarily an eye towards greenhouse gases or environmental, you know, preservation. Whereas in the United States, we are at the stage where there is a political will. So it is going to be more of a challenge in the United States than it will be in other countries. But there is the labor force is here and right, and we're looking for more jobs and, you know, right, and everybody's complaining that we exported all these manufacturing jobs. And now here it is, the demand, the built-in demand for manufacturing. Not, and, and the nice thing about infrastructure is we already have the know-how, right? We're not generations removed from the educated labor force, right? Whereas other technologies maybe have a challenge. Oh, we have to, you know, educate the labor force about how to manufacturing, you know, some semiconductors. But for infrastructure, we got it, right? And some people may have to come out of retirement, of course, but hmm. it still exists. Well, just in closing then, Nesta, I recently was driving across the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, and you just said a little while ago that bridges don't last for more than 100 years. Uh, you've got the Brooklyn Bridge that's over 100 years old. These are huge, important bridges. How much do they need to be fixed? Are they in poor condition as the bridges in Pennsylvania we've been talking about? The thing is that these, these bridges are constantly repaired. Right. The, the, the paints on these bridges are constantly being, you know, they're touch paints here and there. There's like a, the, the, it's painted from end to end every, every five or 10 years. So the, the, the bridges that are both critical links in cities and that are also uh, historical artifacts, they are prioritized above all else. Right. And it's true also for uh, the bridges that are part of the internet, of the, sorry, of the interstate highway system. So those bridges are also on the highest priority because they, they are tied into the economic, the economic development and maintenance of the whole entire 
you know, shipping of goods back and forth across the United States. So those are the, at the highest priority. But even then, the bridge failure in Minnesota, that was also, that was an interstate. So it's a, it's, a, it's a hard challenge. And again, whenever we inspect the bridge and we, and we try to assess how much strength is, remains in the bridge, we're, we're delving into, into somewhat into the unknown. So we have a very, very good idea of how materials behave. But once we start adding fragility into the equation, so well, this, 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 part, this component is a, bit, a little bit rusted through, and this bolt may or may not be holding, but we, we just introduce more and more unknowns. So we have, a, we have an even lesser ability to quantify. So then we start into being, doing qualitative analysis, and that's when you know, engineers have, generally speaking, it's, it leaves a lot open to interpretation. Well, I sure hope they're doing more than repainting the um, Golden Gate Bridge, because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be crossing it soon. So, and a lot of people depend on. It. Now, the, the nice thing about you know the old old bridges is like what I said, they, they were built at a time when analysis methods were, let's say, less than mathematical. Right. Mm. There was a lot of right, there, were, there were there was no computer analysis. There was a lot of uh, rule of thumb, a lot of graphical analysis, which is something that is not even is not even taught in schools anymore. So what? But because the engineers at the time knew that their analysis were left a lot to be desired, there's a lot there is a lot of over design in the older bridges. So mm. they're built. That's that's comforting. Yes. So that's that's why we see some old bridges lasting. Oh, the other thing is, if the bridge didn't, you know, if the bridge wasn't going to last 100 years, it probably wouldn't have lasted 60 years. So we wouldn't even be talking about 100-year bridges. So that's one thing. Pittsburgh has a few 100-year-old bridges, right? The oldest bridge in Pittsburgh, I think, is from 1883. So, and it's been rebuilt and widened, and it used to have trolleys, now it has a bus lane. It, there's a lot of things that can be done, but there is a commitment that has to be put into it. And it is it is not cheap. So I think a lot of times the decision will be made to just replace. Well, Ernesto Gomez, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Nesta Gomez. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University Department of Mechanical Engineering. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the good news for a change with efforts underway to cut off revenues going to the murderous kleptocratic military hunter in Burma, Myanmar. You take the skyway High above the busy little one way In my stupid hat and gloves at night I lie awake Wondering if I'll sleep Wondering if we'll meet out in the street To take the skyway don't move at all like a subway It's got bombs when it's cold like any other place Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org 
And joining us now is Brad Adams, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Asia Division, where he oversees the organization's work on human rights issues in 20 countries from Afghanistan to the Pacific. He worked in Cambodia for five years as a senior lawyer for the Cambodia Field Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, and he now teaches international human rights law and practice at the University of California, Berkeley's Law School. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brad Adams. Uh, Thank you, Ian. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's some good news and bad news about Myanmar, but let's let's start with the good news. And as much as Human Rights Watch had a role in getting the French company Total Energies to pull out of its oil and gas deals, particularly a gas field in Myanmar, turning over, of course, money to the Hunter Control Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise. And now uh, Chevron and Shell have joined in as well, exiting Myanmar. And belatedly, Australia's Woodside Petroleum are also exiting Myanmar. So how much of the $1 billion a year in foreign revenues that the Hunter have been getting from these gas fields, and particularly the multinationals companies have now abandoned, is this biting them? I mean, the Junta is still going to receive all the same funds unless further action is taken. So these companies are simply going to turn over their operations to other companies. Um, the main one is PTT, which is the Petroleum Authority of Thailand, which is a partner in the Yadana gas fields, which is what has been propping up the regime for many years. And it's not just gas and oil, there's also gems and timber, but the main source of revenue for the Burmese military for decades has been um, gas uh, that's been pumped out by Total. Originally Unical, Unical was sold to Chevron, so Total and Chevron and and the Petroleum Authority of Thailand. So what, what needs to happen now is that um, sanctions need to be placed um, on um, revenues going to the Burmese military. And we think that's one of the main reasons that Total pulled out, because they saw sanctions coming. They did a complete 180 and um, announced in a letter to us um, because we had been badgering them for a long time, that they uh, were now in favor of sanctions. Of course, it's easy for them to say that now that they're pulling out. Well, there have been since the coup, though, a lot of uh, targeted economic sanctions on the junta leaders from the US, Canada, the UK and the EU. But they are separate, right, from money that goes to MOG, I guess it's M-O-G-E, the Myanmar Oil and Gas Enterprise. That's right. I mean, targeted sanctions are really important. Um, They hit uh, human rights abusers where they live. They can sometimes uh, affect their overseas bank accounts. Many of the uh, Burmese elite, particularly military, apparently have their funds in Singapore. Um, So if Singapore was subjected to global sanctions on, for example, clearing dollar or euro transactions, which is what happens um, when this money gets recycled um, by the kleptocrats in Burma, you know, then they might have access to some of their funds. But the reality is that the senior leaders of the country, Min Aung Lang, the senior general in charge of the country who carried out the coup and who carried out the genocide against the Rohingya, um, and, and the people around him, are very wealthy. And it is, pro- it is very unlikely that targeted sanctions alone will change their behavior because you know they live gilded lives. They live in mansions, they drive very expensive cars, they take very expensive vacations. Life is pretty good for them while the rest of the country suffers. 
And the country has been suffering in this last year since the coup, asking Un Sang Chu Kyu, who uh, herself was somewhat tainted by the Rohingya genocide. But half the population is now in poverty. And uh, apparently there's a kind of passive resistance from a lot of uh, the state functions and uh, teachers and medical staff are refusing to work in uh, hunter control facilities. So there's sort of passive resistance going on there, I guess, but there's active slaughter as well, is there not, Brad, in Chin province in the West, for example? It's, yeah. it's absolutely... Coup, uh, yeah, since the coup, we think 1,500 people have been killed. That's probably an undercount, um, at least 100 children. Um, many of them are just people who are on the streets peacefully protesting as part of the civil disobedience movement that sprung up after the coup. The civil disobedience movement was really quite, a, I think, quite a shock to the military. They, they seemed to think that um, they would step in and people would be cowed. But in fact, uh, people resisted. They resisted peacefully at first. And that's been the nature of most of the resistance has been peaceful. Um, massive street protests um, broke out. Um, and, um, and the military just started shooting people. Um, and you know, there's um, case after case uh, with video evidence, with eyewitness uh, testimony showing that they just fired into crowds. Um, they, they did that after issuing you know, very explicit warnings, telling people if you go in the streets, uh, there's a good chance that you'll die. Um, so don't, don't waste your time protesting. You won't succeed. And if you do protest, um, you will be harmed. Um, this is a message from the regime. Um, and recently, uh, on Christmas Eve, um, there was a massacre of uh, probably uh, around 40 people um, in uh, Kareni State along the Thai border. And, um, and uh, that's very well documented. And what has been really striking um, is that uh, a peaceful movement against the regime has morphed into um, also an armed movement. And it's called the People's Defense Forces. And many people um, who've been living under military rule, um, direct for more than 50 years, indirect um, over the last decade, are just fed up. Um, and we have professionals who have gone to the jungle and started joining militias. And I, you know, it's a very sad commentary on, on how desperate people are. I mean, personally, I think this is a big mistake. I, th I think the military is going to uh, wipe out uh, people who are not military professionals. Um, and one of the you know best and most admirable parts of the Burmese resistance over the last decades has been um, you know, peaceful uh, resistance, peaceful protest. But people's backs are up against the wall. Um, and so a lot of them are going to the jungle and learning how to shoot a gun. And again, I'm speaking with Brad Adams, who's Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Asia Division, where he oversees the organization's work on human rights issues in 20 countries from Afghanistan to the Pacific. He worked in Cambodia for five years as a senior lawyer for the Cambodian Field Office of the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights, and he now teaches international human rights law and practice at UC Berkeley's Law School. So... What explains, though, you've got these fat cats who've been exploiting the country, these kleptocrats, these generals, as you say, with enormous wealth. But what explains why at the soldier level, at the enlisted men's level in the military, why are they slaughtering their fellow citizens, and particularly in Chin province? Now, Chin province in the West is, is largely Christian, so there's, it's almost a replay of what happened with the Rohingyas, who, of course, are Muslim. There's a perception in the West, and particularly uh, amongst those who see Buddhism as a peaceful religion, that it's a bit hard to get your head around the idea that there is such brutality coming from 
these soldiers, not just the generals, but from the soldiers? What explains that? Well, look, I think there is cognitive dissonance on the idea of Buddhist countries engaging in horrific violence. But I, I mean, I don't think we should relate that to religion. Um, you know, every religious tradition, unfortunately, has um, experiences with horrific violence, um, often in the name of their religion, but not only in their name of the religion. I think what's happened here is you know, we don't know the full picture, but in many cases in Burma, what they do is they feed soldiers a big lie uh, about the threat to the country, threat to their people. And then they deploy soldiers um, from a different region to uh, un to carry out counterinsurgency activities against uh, people that they don't know. Um, and you know we see this in plenty of other parts of the world. Uh, soldiers can be you know, essentially brainwashed um, into believing that they're fighting for you know, an existential fight. Of course, there's also just a lot of soldiers who um, you know go into the military to engage in combat, and they look forward to it. We've seen that with American soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Um, so we don't, have, we don't have a full picture of why average soldiers are doing this, but they probably have convinced themselves or been convinced that they're doing something that is right and noble for their own country. Um, and that's, you know, that's a very sad commentary about the state of education, literacy, um, job prospects, um, the, the, the economic situation in Burma that requires so many young uh, men to join the military and then um, and then and themselves be brutalized by having to participate in these kinds of operations. So, Brad Adams, back to the pulling out of, of Myanmar, particularly in terms of natural gas joint ventures with the junta, with Total, Chevron, Shell, and Woodside, the Australian company, Bladley, joining them as well. You were saying earlier that the problem is that all of these gas fields and oil fields will be then taken over by the Thai state-owned PTT, and the pipeline from Myanmar goes into Thailand and then on into China and Korea and other uh, Asian countries. So I take it the problem with PTT and Thailand in general is that Thailand is also run by a military hunter, is it not? And how deep are their sympathies with the military hunter in Myanmar? Yeah, it's a great question. So the PTT um, is a state-owned enterprise. So that means that the government of Thailand can decide what it should do. It can give them instructions. Um, Thailand does get a certain amount of its own electricity production from this gas, but it's replaceable um, if they wanted to replace it. The Thai uh, military has had a very uneasy relationship with the Burmese military for decades and decades. Um, evidenced by the fact that Thailand has taken a fairly relaxed, benign approach to refugees from Burma coming into Thailand over the last 50 and 60 years. I mean, there's more than uh, 2 million Burmese living in Thailand. If the Thais were close to the Burmese military, they would have shut off the border. Um, and of course, uh, many of the um, Thai, uh, the, sorry, the Burmese um, ethnic armed groups operate from bases close to the Thai border. Um, and resupply and get finances through Thailand. So it's a very mixed picture. Um, the Thai government is an authoritarian government, but I don't think they have a lot of love lost for the Burmese military. That said, they have common interests here. They can make money together. Um, China has a, a much bigger footprint in Southeast Asia than it used to be. I think if we were having this conversation in the 1990s when uh, we were all demanding that Total and uh, Unical pull out of uh, Burma, uh, we may have had a different response from the Thai authorities. They may have joined that call. Um, 
So now it's much more complicated. And, and, and it's, I don't think we can count on the Thai um, authorities making the right decision on their own. They need to be required to. And that's why we're calling for uh, global economic sanctions that would not allow uh, oil revenue, oil and gas revenue to be uh, transmitted back to the Burmese authorities. We're saying it should be held in trust for the Burmese people until such time as there is a, a democratically elected government um, and that the banking system should not be allowed to clear transactions in dollars and euros so that the funds um, would go into a trust fund um, instead of going back into uh, Burma. And would China go along with such a regime? I mean, the Chinese have had uh, active investing in Myanmar, although I believe a big hydroelectric dam project that they had was cancelled for nationalistic reasons. So is there any room to move, maneuver there, or will the Chinese simply just take over from when the Western companies leave Myanmar? Well, there's just, just on the takeover question, there is a question about the technical ability to just hand over. So when Total pulls out, it may be um, a technical problem for PTT or anybody else to come in, just in terms of the, the physical mechanics of bringing the gas out. Um, but putting that aside, let's assume that that problem can be solved. Uh, will China go along with sanctions? Very unlikely. Um, they've been opposed to sanctions. You know, they don't they don't like sanctions in principle because they are subject to sanctions and their own human rights record is so uh, abysmal, including, you know, what what people are calling crimes against humanity and some are calling genocide against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that they are allergic to uh, sanctions. So they would not go along. But the, the thing is that the currency in that is uh, used to clear uh, um, in, in the global financial system is still the, still dollars and secondarily euros. And so whether they go along or not, if the United States, for example, um, passes legislation, the Europeans do too, that bar use of the SWIFT clearing system for financial transactions, then that money is stuck. Um, and there's nothing really that China can do about that. But earlier you mentioned that the hunter, I know they had this lavish wedding, uh, the the daughter of the hunter leader with massive jewels and stuff like that. I mean, they're, they're tacky, they're ostentatious, and this is typical of kleptocrats around the world. How much, though, can you isolate them? You mentioned that uh, in Singapore there are efforts to at least identify the money, whether they could confiscate it or not, since they transact through Singapore. But you've also mentioned that they take expensive travel abroad. Can these kind of activities be sanctioned? through global cooperation? Yeah, they can. Um, it, it takes a lot of will. We've been fighting with the U.S. Treasury for years to do what, um, to, to take the action that they have the power to take. But they're very slow. Um, it's, not the, it's not what they wake up every morning to do. They, you know, they, the U.S. Treasury wakes up to try to deal with the U.S. economy and the global economy. Um, they have a very small unit that deals with this. And the same with other countries. Um, they can do a lot more if they have the political will and put the resources um, into it. It takes a lot of work to track down assets, um, but it, it's it's not beyond the power of, of governments. As we know, they have very, very um, strong intelligence capabilities when they want to use them. You know, it, it, it is worth picking up your point about how lavishly they live. I was um, in the presidential palace in, I think, 2011 or 12 in Napidot. Um, the Burmese military created a, a brand new city uh, in the 2000, early 2000s called Napidaw. They moved the capital from Yangon 
really for just this kind of moment, because they, I think they realized <clears throat> that if they ever carried out a coup and they were headquartered in the country's most populous city, they'd have real problems. So they cleared a whole area of jungle, moved the capital to the middle of nowhere. It's basically a garrison town. Um, and the, the buildings there are just shocking. I mean, I was um, on a delegation with a lot of people who've been in a lot of beautiful palaces um, and uh, seen residences of prime ministers and others. And we, you know, as a group, we'd never seen anything like it. All marble um, uh, and, and the most expensive um, fittings you could find. Um, these people live in a, in a fairy tale, almost fake detached world. Um, um, the air conditioning's on all the time. The waters are lawn and uh, the lawns are watered and manicured. They, they live five-star lives. Um, and, and that is also, I think, another reason why they are in such opposition to the general public. They don't have any idea of the conditions that average Burmese are living. The, the poverty is intense, the lack of food, lack of access to health care, the, the, the way COVID is ripping through this, the country. Um, so, I mean, if you hit them in the wallet and their lifestyles change, it's possible that we would see um, at, at the secondary level, below the, the Minong Lang, the, the guy who runs the country, them starting to react. Um, if his policies are leading to pain in their pocketbook they and they can't live five-star lives, they may decide that this is not the right leader. So just in closing, uh, Brad Adams, if there is a war between Ukraine and Russia, which President Biden suggested on Thursday it could happen uh, next month, that small part of the Treasury Department, I know the one that sends out the so-called red notices, should that be enlarged to take on on Russia because there'll be massive sanctions involved there and then, you know, take on the Burmese Hunter and other kleptocrats around the world? In other words, should we be resourcing that part of the Treasury Department? Absolutely. And it's very frustrating. You know, the, <clears throat> the problem of the crisis du jour mentality in government is that um, really, really uh, important issues tend to get left in the dust. And you know, already Afghanistan, which you know, my organization worked on, has been working on for decades, um, is being pushed to the side. I mean, Afghanistan is facing one of the biggest crises imaginable on all fronts, humanitarian and human rights. Um, and it's kind of on the back pages. And, and if, if the conflict in Ukraine happens, it's going to push everything on the back pages. And we're going to see government, as you're suggesting, focusing on the latest crisis and forgetting about the previous ones. So yes, they do. They, they need to, to build up their capacity to walk and chew gum at the same time um, and to deal with, you know, whatever the most, the biggest crisis they're facing is at the moment while continuing to work on other crises, um, you know, the chronic crises. And, and Burma, you know, for the last, since 1962, when the first coup happened um, by the Burmese military, um, has been a chronic crisis for 60 years um, and, and has just only received intermittent attention when it's reached the front pages. Well, Brad Adams, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Hey, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Brad Adams, who's Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Asia Division, where he oversees the organization's work on human rights issues in 20 countries from Afghanistan to the Pacific. He worked in Cambodia for five years as a senior lawyer for the Cambodian Field Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, and he now teaches international human rights law and practice at UC Berkeley School of Law. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into 
the Wall Street coup plot against FDR that General Smedley Butler exposed, and the similarities between what happened in 1933 and the January 6th attempted coup. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Katz, who received the James Foley Medill Medal for Courage in Journalism for his reporting from Haiti. He was a New American National Fellow in the Future of War program, and also his work appears in the New York Times and Foreign Policy, among others. And his first book was The Big Truck That Went By, which won numerous awards. And his latest book just out is Gangsters of Capitalism. Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Katz. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And later in his life, after a career in the Marines, Smedley Butler wrote famously that I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. That's not exactly what they teach in American history books, and I imagine they don't teach it in the uh, military academies. No, um, actually, uh, I so so you know uh, later in his life, he he at that point in his life, he wrote a book called "War Is a Racket," um, where that line actually does not come from, but but uh, in some sort of later editions of it, it's it's sort of added as a supplemental material. And when I went to, I spent you know a fair amount of time. Quantico at the, the the Marine Corps, one of the Marine Corps' main bases, main campuses, uh, doing research on Butler's letters. Um, and in the library of the Marine Corps, uh, they actually have Wars a Racket, um, but they shelve it away from the the other books about Smedley Butler uh, in in and and uh, other Marine Corps heroes. Uh, it's sort of on a on a side shelf with uh, with, with with a number of other volumes, including a, a thin volume by Karl Marx. And just to sort of flesh it out a little bit, in 1935, and he, he died in 1940, mm-hmm. Butler wrote, I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interest in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street, and I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912, and I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916, and I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903, and in China in 1927 I helped see to it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. Yep. So how much is this about American imperialism in the or how distinct is American imperialism from British imperialism? I mean they're different countries. <laughs> I know, but I mean the the methodology my understanding in fact it comes from a, an an odd source and that is the, the famous spy Kim Philby. His father Harry St John Philby was the advisor to the Saudi king in the 1930s when they 
tribesmen captured these geologists from Standard Oil looking for oil, and then when they finally would drag these guys into the palace, Harry St. John Philby did the translating for the king, and the king thought for a minute, oh, you know, they're looking for water, which is great. Uh, they said, no, they're looking for oil. And then when they found oil, the Saudi king had a, a dilemma. He said, you know, should we make this deal with the British, since they, they're they our sort of colonial partners, or at least they're not a colony, but we've been dealing with them. And after all, Harry St. John Philby was, was a Brit. Or should we make the deal with the Americans? And Harry St. John Philby advised the king to make the deal with the Americans because as imperialists, they don't care. They'll let you do what you want to do and run your country. And all they care about is the commercial interests, whereas the British will expect at some point that you'll have a parliamentary democracy. So <laughs> is that a way to look at it? I mean, you know, to a certain extent that the, the Americans, you know, first of all, obviously, the United States was formerly a, a British colony. Um, and, and so, you know, that the genealogy goes back a long way. Um, but in in Butler's day, uh, you know, the Americans were were learning directly from the British um, and sort of at the sides, at the, you know, to some extent at the feet of the British, um, you know, in in 1900, uh, when Butler and the Marines uh, invade China, um, it's as part of the, you know, the so-called uh, eight nation allied force um, to, to put down the, the peasant rebellion of, of, of the boxers um, who, who by that point were, were allied with, with the Qing dynasty. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that invasion was led by by the British, and the Americans were 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 fighting alongside the British and and learning from them. I mean, I would say that the way that some Americans look at it is that the difference between British imperialism and American imperialism is that the British, you know, directly administered colonies, um, you know, set up the Raj, set up uh, direct report client uh, governments that, that were overseen by viceroys and that the Americans after basically the war in the Philippines, which is another thing that I talk about at, at length in, in Gangsters, where the United States um, basically tries its hand at, at wholly conquering and, and directly administering in that, you know, in that vein, um, the Philippine Islands. Um, that, that the Americans sort of switch to uh, a little bit more of a, a behind the scenes, uh, you know, and as, as, as you noted in, in your anecdote, you know, sort of willing to work with any kind of dictator or, or any kind of, of uh, uh, <laughs> you know, horrible uh, uh, government that is willing to basically, you know, let them make money. Um, but it's it's not really that that simple a dichotomy. I mean, the British, you know, the British directly administered India as as a corporation. Um, a lot of a lot of British imperialism sort of took this form of, you know, I mean, even even the the uh, the colonies that became the United States, you know, they were they were corporations chartered by the crown, but you know, they operated as as corporations and as as early as early uh, you know business interests. Um, so it's it it doesn't it doesn't break down entirely. Um, but I mean, you know, broadly speaking, especially as we get into the the 21st century, um, you know, the United States loves having its plausible deniability, and 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 one one big difference, and I think maybe this can can be overstated, but you know, one big difference is that you know the the, the British 
go around and, and, and went around, you know, talking about themselves affirmatively as the British Empire, whereas it's uh, it's a little bit of a contentious claim for me even to have put, you know, America's empire in the subtitle of my book. Americans Americans don't on the main think about themselves, even even the most, uh, uh, you know, hard right, you know, nationalist Americans, uh, generally speaking, don't acknowledge that we have an empire. Well, Mao Zedong once said that the trick is to have hegemony without responsibility. So <laughs> do you think we've learned from Mao Zedong? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they also, you know, the, the, the U.S. military also reads uh, Mao's writings on, you know, on guerrilla warfare. So, you know, they, they, he's, he's, he's not, uh, he's not a, a cherished figure in, in, in the United States, but uh, at, at the higher levels of American imperialism, people certainly learn from him. And, and I also talk about Mao in, in my book because he, he, he also intersects with, with Butler when he comes back to uh, China in the 1920s, as you noted in in uh, in your intro, largely to to defend Standard Oil and and other American business interests. And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Katz, who received the James Foley Medill Medal for Courage in Journalism for his reporting from Haiti. He was a New America National Fellow in the Future of War program, and his work appears in the New York Times and Foreign Policy, among other publications. His first book, The Big Truck That Went By, won numerous awards. And his latest book, Just Out, is Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, the Marines, and the Making and Breaking of American Empire. And you spent time in Haiti, and of course, Smedley Butler is loathed in Haiti, where the Haitians were treated after the Marine invasion, when Medley Butler was a major, like slaves, having been freed from slavery, that was a rather bitter. But in a broader sense, in terms of Latin American, I guess it goes back to the Monroe Doctrine, although it's worth noting that President Monroe died alone and penniless in a poorhouse, that what Butler was doing in that, or what he was waking up to after he got fired by the Secretary of the Navy, for criticizing Mussolini, which is extraordinary, um, mm -hmm. that Butler recognized that the U.S. essentially was putting into power these Hitlers and Mussolinis in Latin America, like the dictators uh, Trujillo and Somoza. Mm -hmm. It should also be noted, by the way, that so the 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 Monroe Doctrine. Maybe I should even call it the so-called Monroe Doctrine, um, which is the the original version was written by John Quincy Adams, who became president of the United States himself. During this period of of American imperialism, you know, especially you know the the nineteen aughts, the nineteen teens, the nineteen twenties, um, there was a lot. The, Any time we acted in in Latin America, um, it it is sort of remembered as the so called Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, um, but. Theorists and, and historians and political scientists, um, I think, really broadly agree, especially Walter Lefebvre has, has written about this extensively, that rather than creating a corollary to the, the Monroe Doctrine, which was that the United States should intervene militarily in other countries in the Western Hemisphere, in our sphere of influence, anytime uh, America's interests are, are threatened, um, that that really was not a corollary. That was an entirely new doctrine. Um, in James Monroe's day, the United States was, you know, it was a, an emerging regional power. It was, you know, still sort of a, you know, a recent 
British colony um, that didn't have the the guns <laughs> and the ships um, needed to to really do interventions in our hemisphere. And so uh, what 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 Quincy Adams and Monroe were talking about was they just wanted to they just wanted the, you know the the British and the French um, to, to to keep as far away as possible so that you know, they wouldn't be setting up beachheads in in Latin America. Um, but Teddy Roosevelt, uh, in his so-called corollary, is really proposing something completely different, um, which is that the United States has uh, uh, the right, even even the, the need, to intervene militarily anytime we want to, essentially, um, in our own hemisphere. And and that was that was really a new thing. And and Smedley Butler and and his generation of Marines were were the leading edge of that. Right. And then the sort of tragedy for Latin America continues throughout history, because after the Cuba crisis and the communist takeover of Cuba, JFK, he started the Alliance for Progress, I think it was called. But essentially what that was, was an effort to shore up the military and the police establishments in these Latin American countries to ward off communism. So and that's led directly to the kind of uh, military uh, hunters that have been running Latin America up until through the seventies and eighties, and 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 you know, and the, that is built on the framework uh, created by, honestly, by Smedley Butler. I mean, more than anybody else, uh, the you know, it was Butler who, uh, in the intervention in Nicaragua in in uh, nineteen twelve, um, came up with the idea of of uh, what he called mounted constabulary, but but you know, what he meant was a a, a U.S. Uh, trained client army. Um, that would sort of oversee the country in in the American stead. Um, Butler was the first one to really implement that in its full form uh, in Haiti with the Gendarmerie d'Haïti. Um, and then that's a model that has carried on to the present day. It was, um, as you note, in, in the Alliance for Progress, um, it was the Guardia Nacional in Nicaragua was was what put the uh, uh, you know Tacho Samosa in, into power, and it's it's carried on through the uh, ARVN in in Vietnam and all the way to you know 2021 with the the sudden and, and disastrous uh, fall of of the Afghan uh, National Army, the Afghan National Security Forces. Th- that that model it's sometimes called. You know, Vietnamization or Iraqization or Afghanistanization, I guess you would say um, that really it goes back to it goes back to Butler and, and you know, his initial his initial insight that, you know, if we if we train and put the people that we want running these forces uh, in power, that uh, that they can that they can run the country according to the dictates of the United States. Um without us being there. And that's, that's part of what creates the empire that, that then Butler, you know, spends the last 10 years of his life sort of futilely um, trying to, to dismantle or to, to, to speak out against. So let's turn then to the extraordinary story in your new book, Jonathan Katz, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler and the Marines and the Making and Breaking of American Empire. And that is the business plot, the Wall Street push, where a bond salesman, Gerald Maguire, met with Butler, actually hounded him, kept meeting with him. Uh, he'd also been meeting, uh, spending time in fascist Europe and Hitler's Berlin, and he wanted to organize a coup financed by Citibank's J.P. Morgan and the Wall Street financer Grayson Murphy. And eventually, the idea was that because of Smedley Butler's popularity as this extraordinarily loved Marine, the fighting Quaker, as he was called, 
Uh, he would lead a half a million veterans to march on Washington, financed by the DuPonts, etc., and that they would basically put, I suppose, a bit like what happened on January the 6th, you know, take the Capitol or, or surround the White House and then get Roosevelt to basically appoint a Secretary of General Affairs who would be kind of a regent for the Wall Street powers and Roosevelt could still stay in office as a kind of figurehead. And that was the plan. And it has incredible echoes of what happened on January the 6th, as much as we are now learning from the House Select Committee, and I'm sure we'll learn more, the extent to which this was not some spontaneous action on the part of a bunch of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, militia types, etc., that stormed the Capitol, but rather an attempt by a failed president to try and cling on to office. Yeah, I know that that's very well said, all of that. And, uh, you know, the, the difference is that, that uh, the, the, the retired generals who were who, who seemed to have been involved in, in January 6th were, were the, the broader Trump, you know, coup uh, to, to uh, cast out on and, and try to overthrow the, the results of the 2020 election. Um, you know, guys like General Michael Flynn, the the army colonel who came up with the the powerpoint that 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 you know was the part of the basis for um for the action over the course of those weeks that that culminated in, in January 6 and the insurrection um you know none none of them were smedley butlers none of them none of them you know drew a line and said uh this is this is too far and and spoke out and uh we're now we're now dealing with the consequences you know it, it, that that was a a failed coup trump is not currently the president um, and I think even his, except for his maybe, you know, most, you know, drowning in the Kool-Aid uh, supporters, I think everybody would sort of acknowledge that, <laughs> that that it didn't work out that Biden is president now. But plans are continuing for 2024, where basically, you know, you know, the state legislatures uh, in the United States are, 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 you know, passing and drafting laws that say that, you know, if they don't like the results of the 2024 election, they can, you know, submit their own slate of electors and declare whoever they want to be, uh, you know, the, the inheritor of the or the winner of, of the electoral right. votes of their state. Exactly. And, that, um, and, yeah. and you could describe that as a move towards a one party Republican state led by Donald Trump. And you could use 100%. the F word fascism yeah. because that's what, yeah. where we're, we're definitely heading now. Just in the last minute here, the sure. there was a congressional investigation into Smedley Butler's charges, and the New York Times basically poo-pooed the whole thing, and mm-hmm. they gave the accused the headlines, etc. And then Time Magazine lampooned it as a plot without plotters. This time around, uh, at least the press is on on to what's happening. Whether the American mm-hmm. people are going to wake up in time before they do become a one-party fascist state is another matter. But just in closing, given that. The congressional report never named the names of the coup plotters back uh, in 1933. What do you expect from this January the 6th commission? Do you think they'll get to the bottom and name the names? I mean, they are already naming far more names in public you know, then the McCormick Dixon Committee, uh, which which investigated the the 1934 business plot, did. You know, there are a lot of differences. One one of the big ones is that you know January 6th happened. The, the the assault on the Capitol happened. It was on television. You know, people all over the world watched it and saw it. So it's a lot harder to pretend like like it. You know, it's it's just this wild conspiracy theory that that is um uh, you know kind of behind the scenes. The thing that you know, the thing that I that that could carry forward that I that I hope doesn't 
is that, you know, part of the reason why the investigation to the 1934 business plot didn't end up being as as thorough as it could have been um, is that I think that, you know, to a certain extent, you know, it was sort of elites protecting their own. Uh, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the the, the target of that plot, um, was in, in many ways, in many excellent ways, a, a, a traitor to to his class. I mean, he was a former imperialist who knew uh, Smedley Butler from the from the U.S. occupation of Haiti and was just, you know, a rich guy from a rich family. Um, and, you know, he did he did a lot of, of things to sort of distance himself and absolve himself of 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 those past ties. But to a certain extent, I think that he felt that, you know, it would it, it would be unseemly to to really, uh, you know, go all the way and investigate the extent to which the the DuPonts and Alfred P. Sloan and and the other rich guys who were behind the, the business plot were responsible. And the thing that I hope doesn't happen is that we don't again see sort of this this kind of perverse class solidarity uh, in which the 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 congressional committee is just sort of like well you know let's hold uh, you know sort of the individual insurrectionists responsible and uh, you know maybe if uh, if Steve Bannon or whoever doesn't cooperate with us then we can you know press contempt charges Donald Trump Donald Trump should be ineligible to to run for president again I mean he he should have been convicted um, in his second impeachment. And holding former presidents accountable is something that American presidents uh, have been completely allergic to for my entire life. And that's got to change. And and I hope that I hope that Merrick Garland, the, the attorney general of the United States, does not, uh, you know, and, and Joe Biden do not carry forward that legacy of, of, of the business plot where they say, well, they tried. They failed. Uh, we, we now know about it. That's good enough. Um, and not take any steps to prevent things like this from happening again, because we know that they are being planned and they will be executed uh, in, in short order. And I thank you for joining us here today, Jonathan Katz. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Katz, who received the James Foley Medill Medal for Courage in Journalism for his reporting from Haiti. He was a New American National Fellow in the Future of War program, and his work appears in the New York Times and Foreign Policy, among other publications. His first book is The Big Truck That Went By, which won numerous awards, and his latest book just out is Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.
disappeared by 